couple minutes, if the panelists would come up to the uh, to the stage, we appreciate it. Okay, is is everyone almost settled in? Okay. These are like TV lights. I'm Sharon Thompson. I'm on the board of the Center for Lesbian and Gay Studies, and I was on the organizing committee for this evening. I want to welcome you all on behalf of Penn and Clags. This evening marks the first time that Penn has sponsored a gathering on lesbian and gay literature. We know, though, it won't be the last because a second evening of panels on gay male literature with, among others, John Retchie, Michael Cunningham, and Dennis Cooper will take place on Monday, April 20th. So you've got your calendars, mark it down. Like most Clags events, this one was produced by a lot of meetings, and I want to thank everyone who attended them and put so much time and thought into assembling these extraordinary panels. From Penn, Stephen Friedman, Karen Kennerly, Pamela Pierce, Ira Silverberg, Silverberg, and at the outset, David Levitt, and from Clags, Marty Duberman, Randolph Trumbach, and especially Elisa Solomon, who put many, many hours on the phone um, making this event occur even under the pressure of journalistic deadlines. Amazingly, this is a free event. Might, if I destroy the podium, that won't be so free. Uh, but it hasn't been free for us to stage. It cost about $2,000. We've brought a lot of writers here from far away. And at other universities or for other university-affiliated groups, this would not be a lot of money. Um, and in fact, bringing any one of these panelists in could easily have cost over $2,000, and they would be well worth it. Uh, but for the Center for Lesbian and Gay Studies, it's an enormous amount. CLAGS has been remarkably successful in raising money for fellowships. We're the sponsoring organization for a series of Rockefellers, and we also administer two privately endowed fellowships in lesbian and gay history and sponsor an endowed lecture, which many of you may have heard uh, Joan Nessel deliver this year. It was a brilliant, brilliant uh, lecture. Um, but administrative funds are very difficult to come by, and this evening has not been sponsored by any foundation. For this reason, we're going to be passing a couple of hats. Where's the hat passers? <laughs> There's one over there and one over there. If you didn't contribute at the door, and probably many of you did, but if you didn't, and you think it over, and you can possibly afford it, if you could put, say, 650 into the hat to cover the cost of your seat, we'd appreciate it. If you could put some more in to sponsor someone else, that would be just great. Checks would be wonderful. <laughs> we'll cash them right away. Um, and you can do this now so you don't have to be digging around um, while, while these wonderful panelists are speaking. And in fact, maybe, no, I won't wait. <laughs> um, one last thing, and I'll turn the evening over to Lisa Kennedy, who will moderate the first panel. The raffle, on each of your seats there was a raffle ticket. Um, if you just fill in your name and address, that's all you have to do to qualify for the raffle. We're going to be raffling off after the 45-minute dinner break a number of books by the uh, writers here, <coughs> autographed books. Um, 
and all we want is your name and address. All we actually want to be able to do is invite you back again. Uh, so now what you've come here for, the first panel, Lisa Kennedy, who is the arts editor of The Village Voice, moderating a discussion by Irene Fornes, Bertha Harris, Jill Johnston, and Barbara Smith, who will be speaking in part in her own right and in part in recollection of Audre Lorde, a great writer whose loss we felt sorely as we put this event together, and we know we'll all feel again and again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh-oh. Well, I feel very privileged to be on this, with this illustrious group, though also somewhat nervous. So this, the first five minutes may be slightly shaky, but then I'll turn it over to them, and it won't be. Um, this panel is called Heroes Looking Back, which I imagine the heroes are not particularly comfortable with necessarily, but it gives a nice attention to the second panel. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a Sagittarius problem. I think that was supposed to be like a nice thing for both panels, not a slight of the second. Um, uh, I'm going to begin just by reading the biographies of the folks up here. Though they don't need introductions, they deserve them. So uh, let me begin. And then we're going to try to keep it pretty informal. So I think people will do, um, for the most part, um, some opening statements, and then we'll open it up for, well, I'll ask questions, and then 50 minutes or so into this, we'll open the questions up for you folks. So, um, to my left is Irene Fornes. She's a playwright, director, and a teacher of playwriting as well, and she began writing plays in the 60s during the off-Broadway off movement. Um, I would be surprised if you didn't know some of the names of these plays and or hadn't seen them, because they, all in all, she's gotten even seven Obies. Um, some of the plays are The Danube, The Conduct of Life, Fefu and Her Friends, Abingdon Square, and What of the Night. Um, and that's Irene. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> There's more, but she'll tell you. Jill Johnson's to my right, um, and she's probably doesn't need much of an introduction at all, but I will give her one anyway, which is she's an autobiographer and critic. She had been a columnist and critic for The Village Voice for many years. Um, she's written Marmalade Me, Lesbian Nation. This is the 20th anniversary of Lesbian Nation. It dates us all. Uh, She's also the author of Gullible's Travels, Motherbound, Paper Daughter, and she's at present a contributor in Art in America and the New York Times Book Review. So. Um, to Jill's right is Bertha Harris, fiction writer and more. Let me, she wrote this and it's so great because it's, I think, I don't know, I've really enjoyed it. Also, when we talked on the phone, she said to me that she'd been uh, practicing lesbian since she was 17. And but not but, perfect. But not perfect, which was, the, I knew it was like, the, I knew there was a hook that was so pleasurable. So. Anybody wants to come <laughs> predict that. <thank> you. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right, so after enjoying many years of New York's avant-garde and gay and feminist activism and sex and drugs and rock and roll in the company of the most attractive women, men, and children below 14th Street, Bertha Harris for the moment is living with Tennyson, a large red Maine coon. What is that? <laughs> it's a cat, <laughs> sorry. Uh, by a river in Massachusetts where <laughs> when she isn't hanging out with the most attractive women, men, and children available and amusing herself in profound, pardon me, profoundly minimalist fashion with the current dance company, she continues to write compelling, eccentric, and faintly indecent fiction, none of which will ever make her supposedly an invaluable contri contributor to American letters. I, I would think otherwise. Yeah, I'm proud of it. <laughs> her third novel, Lover, is none, nevertheless being brought back into print late this year by New York University Press in its cutting edge series. Uh, Bertha Harris has written a long and scandalous introduction to the new edition of Lover, which readers will certainly enjoy as much as the novel itself. At the moment, Bertha is 55 years old. Does this sound like the dating game? <laughs> <laughs> Our next contestant um, is... <laughs> is uh, Barbara Smith. And I am using my mic, but I will use it more. Hello. How's this? Okay. Barbara Smith is a black feminist writer and activist. Her articles, essays, literary, criti literary criticism, and short stories have appeared in a variety of publications, including the Gay Community News, the New York Times Book Review, Ms., The Advocate, The Black Scholar, the Guardian, The Village Voice. She has, what is it? She has edited three major collections by black women, um, beginning with Conditions Five, the black women's issue, um, which she edited with Lorraine Bethel as well in 1979. All the women are white, all the blacks are men, but some of us are brave, um, which is a great book. It made a huge difference in my life. That was when I was coming out. Uh, with Gloria T. Hull and Patricia Bell Scott as co-editors. That was in 1982. And in 1983, she edited Homegirls, a black feminist anthology. She is also the co-author with Ellie Bulkin and Minnie Bruce Pratt of Yours in Struggle, Three Feminist Perspectives in Anti-Semitism and Racism. She is, as well, the co-founder of Combahee River Collective, a black feminist and lesbian group which did political organizing in Boston in 1974 through 1980. She served on the board of National Coalition of Black Lesbians and Gays from 1985 to 1988. She's a co-founder and current pr publisher of Kitchen Table, Women of Color Press, the only U.S. publisher for women of color. She is co-founder and currently an active member of Revolutionary Sisters of Color, a national socialist feminist of color organization. <laughs> oh, those identities. She, has she was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and lived in Boston for nine years from 1972 until 1981. And she currently lives in Albany, New York. So. <laughs> it's my hope that by um, just going directly to them speaking as writers and publishers and playwrights and whatnot and how that experience has, what, well, in whatever way they choose to talk about it, will sort of get us around immediately getting to questions, you know, the same language that we always or often are forced to use about identities and community. I think that if we do it in a more organic fashion, we may find that we have new ways to talk about this stuff. So I hope that's what arises. So 
Barbara's going first. And the reason I thought that Barbara should go first is that um, in the past few weeks when I've been looking for people's work that are on this panel, I was having quite a hard time finding it. And it was infuriating and frustrating and not, not necessarily surprising, but extraordinarily frustrating. And, uh, and I thought that Barbara as a pu publisher might also like to speak to that because I know that she's here as you know, a spokesperson for Audre Lorde, but she's also here entirely in her own right. So, Barbara. Thank you, Lisa. Um, when I was contacted about doing this panel, I was told that I did not have to prepare anything. And I took the people who called me, Elisa Solomon was actually the person who <laughs> made verbal contact at their words. So I have not prepared anything. Um, I was told, too, that we would have, I guess, uh, Who's a, uh, who's a female, uh, you know, counterpart of the Socratic method? That people were going to ask questions, and then we were going to get to answer them. I thought that was pretty great because um, I really dislike uh, academic formats where people talk and talk and talk at you, and your brain gets smaller and smaller as that happens. I think that they're, when they're real live people in a real place, they should communicate with each other, which means speaking to each other. Um, and I'd like that idea, as I said, of responding to questions. However, since I have to go first, and I'm supposed to say something about, uh, I guess, why I'm on this panel and what all this means, uh, I can certainly do that without having written it down, because it is my life. I also wanted to do the panel because of the fact that, uh, as it was explained to me, uh, I w was being asked to talk about what is now the legacy of Audre Lorde. And um, she just died, as all of you know, in November. And uh, many of us who were close to her and those who were not even as close on a personal or daily basis, our lives have been changed by that reality. And some of us who are close to her uh, has spent a lot of time in what her dear daughter uh, Beth just described to me last week as a kind of growing Audrey frenzy. <laughs> and being friends with Audrey for 16 years, we met in 1976, um, I felt that probably there would be uh, other invitations, there have been in fact, following the one that I got to do this for CLAGS and for Penn, which I, who I would like to thank both of those organizations for having the foresight to bring these panels together. Uh, this, this is a unique event even for New York City, I think. But in any event, um, as I said, having been friends with her for so long, I knew that I would probably get other invitations to do this kind of thing. This is the one I chose to do. And this is the one uh, I may not do many others, I probably will do some others, but I may not do many others, but this is the one that I chose to do uh, in her name and in <coughs> honor uh, of her and of uh, our friendship, too. Um, I think many of the things that motivated her to do the kinds of work that she did as an artist, as a poet, as a black, lesbian, feminist, mother and warrior, her words, are the same kinds of things that motivated me uh, and continue to motivate me. Uh, when we met in 1976, uh, there was a vast wasteland of unwritten, unseen, unpublished works by black lesbians. Um, when I saw, uh, I came out in the early, well, the mid-1970s, but it was before, it was around 75. Um, and I was thinking about it long before that. 
And, <laughs> and uh, when I got, I think the first time I ever bought lesbian uh, literature, lesbian periodicals, uh, one of the things I bought was Amazon Quarterly, which probably many of you know was one of the pivotal uh, journals of that early wave of lesbian feminist organizing and cultural production in this country. And uh, it was hard to buy those. I bought them at a straight bookstore in Boston that had you know, those kinds of publications. <laughs> in other words, an eclectic, a really good bookstore. Um, and um, as I said, it was hard to buy them. It was hard to take them up to the counter um, and have the white male clerk ring them up. But of course, when I left, I was so happy that I had made that step of uh, just buying something that had lesbian on the cover. And you can imagine how I felt. I had been teaching black literature for several years by that time. And, and uh, you can imagine how I felt when I opened uh, Amazon Quarterly and saw on the masthead Audrey's name. I knew who Audrey was because I knew black literature. I was teaching black literature. I was teaching myself black literature as I was teaching it to my students. And I said, oh, God, Audrey, Lord, you know, I had even taught her uh, work, and I was just like blown away. It was so exciting. Uh, today, I walked by the New York Hilton, and we were together once before, <laughs> uh, when the Modern Language Association used to have these um, incredible <coughs> literary events back in the mid-70s, early mid-70s, lesbian literature events, women's literature events, when everything was so new and seemingly possible. Um, and that was where I met Audrey, and I walked by there just today, as I said. Um, I like walking by places where we were uh, together. Um, we became friends soon after that. Um, as far as myself and what motivated me to want to write, I think you probably have some ideas about that in relationship to Audrey, because I think Zami, which is such a wonderful work, her autobiographical uh, work, which she calls a biomythography. She talks about her life as a young writer, uh, that desire to put it down in words. I wanted to be a writer from the point that I found that, w that one could be that. Uh, that was probably in junior high school. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, which uh, I wanted to get out of desperately. Um, subsequently, I realized I was very lucky because we had marvelous cultural, white cultural and black cultural too, uh, institutions there. And uh, I was seeing theater, live theater, being done by black actors uh, as a child. I was going to one of the best museums in this country, the Cleveland uh, Museum. I was hearing one of the best symphony orchestras uh, in this country at that time. And at home, I was listening to the best black music namely jazz. So in some ways, I had it all. <laughs> we had no money, needless to say. But the thing is that, uh, as I said, I wanted to get out of Cleveland. Um, books were always friends to me. In fact, I had more books than friends. And um, my aunt would bring books home. She worked at the Cleveland Public Library downtown, the main branch of the Cleveland Public Library. For, for those of you who may know libraries, it was a library of record, which meant that you could find just about anything you wanted there. If it wasn't in circulating, it would be in reference. It was perfect for my sister and myself that she worked at the library. And she would bring shopping bags full of books home. 
And uh, one of the people she brought home was James Baldwin. When I read James Baldwin, I had never read anything that was remotely like the kind of life I was living growing up as a working class black girl in the 1950s in a large industrial city. I had never read anything that reminded me remotely of myself. When I read Go Tell It on the Mountain, I was just awestruck. And that was around the time that I began to know that one could be a writer and be black and come from no, no money. Um, and that one could write about those kinds of experiences and actually achieve greatness, because of course he did. Um, I was always writing some things. Unfortunately, I don't have any of the things that I wrote at that age, uh, and I'd probably be embarrassed if I did. But uh, it's been a long time dream. One of the things that happened as I began, uh, you know, went through you know, puberty and adolescence, et cetera, and began to have lesbian feelings was that I thought I would never be able to write because writing is about truth, and if you can't tell the truth, then what are you going to write about? And that was really a conundrum. Uh, lots of people think that because I went to a women's college that I was a feminist, you know, in 1965. There was no women's movement in 1965. So I did not go to a women's college because I was a budding feminist. I just went because I didn't want to be bothered with white men, you know? <laughs> I knew that I was go going to probably go to uh, a primarily and almost entirely white school. I did. And um, I thought, well, if I'm going to have to deal with racism dead up in my face, I'm not going to be dealing with a word that we didn't even have then, sexism. I wasn't going to deal with that. I was not going to be treated in the classroom as if I was nothing based on both my race and my gender. So I, I applied only to women's colleges with one exception. Uh, and also I was encouraged to do that by a marvelous guidance counselor who actually thought that black uh, students could achieve, which of course, as we know, is a rarity even to this day. Um, as I said, I was discouraged about being a writer because I knew I was a lesbian. Um, I was also um, discouraged by the people at that college I went to. Um, and it was really coming out, it was really coming out in the context of the women's movement that made, it, made me think that I could write about what was really important to me. Um, Audrey, I think, and I shared a vision for what we wanted black women to have in this world. We still don't have it. We still do not have it. But I think that she and I, and several others too, I think of Pat Parker, I think that a few of us decided that even though we did not have it, that we were going to try to describe it in the things that we wrote. Uh, a world far better than the one that we inhabit. Um, I think that's probably sufficient uh, for now. One last thing I guess I would say is that um, I think that Audrey, I know she did, I'm not going to say I think, I know that Audrey and I know that I see writing as a profoundly political activity. Uh, we did not think that we could have brilliant careers as black lesbian writers and have the immediate world go hang. We thought that in order for us to do anything, 
that was credible that we had to struggle at the very same time to make a world that was fit to live in. Uh, I'm still involved in that struggle. Um, ideology is uh, something that is expressed often in words as well as in actions. Um, inspiration is something that you can get from the pages of a book, especially if you feel invisible uh, in the world. And who could be more invisible than a black lesbian? Uh, now there is a uh, boom in lesbian and gay literature. Well, let's just put it like it really is. There's a boom in white gay male literature. They let in a few white girls and no lesbians of color need apply. Uh, I know my lesbian sisters, lesbian of color sisters who tried to get publishing contracts for their lesbian material with uh, commercial publishers. That's a hard road to hoe because they don't get it, <laughs> you know. But the thing is that um, I think for those of us who understand what the parameters of all of this are, what the parameters are, we know that we have to fight in the real world just as we describe some kind of decent vision of the world we're wanting to inhabit on the page. It's a combination. And it's an ethical choice. Audrey made an ethical choice to be out. Uh, anyone who is out, particularly when you do it in the context of a racial community with whom you need to have support and solidarity, you're making a strong ethical decision because you take a lot of licks for it. She took them. Uh, I miss being able to talk to her about what we mutually experience doing the things that we're committed to doing. But I think that's enough for now. Thanks. Thank I asked Bertha to go second. Well, I don't mind since we're just the warm-up act for the second panel. <laughs> um, they're going to do the dirty part. Um, I thought I'd say, it just, I just remembered that <laughs> something I had totally forgotten. Um, and Barbara reminded me of this. And that this is going to come as a surprise, I think, to some of you. but. I was a black novelist before I was a lesbian novelist. Um, well, I wrote my first novel, Catching Sarah Dove, in the uh, mid-60s. And, um, and I, I didn't know publishers or agents or anything, so I just put it in envelopes, you know, and sent it off to people in the phone book. And it came back, and it came back, and it came back, of course, and I was baffled. I thought that's how you did it. but. Um, finally, I sent it to one publisher, and I got a phone call, and they said, we adore this book. We have been desperately looking for a black writer, a woman, a black woman writer, because there aren't any. And, uh, and I thought, what? And, and, and they said, you know, and they said, I'm paraphrasing, of course, uh, and it's even better that there's all this kinky sex in it because <laughs> there's, there's no, there are no black lesbians either who are writers, right? So um, I thought about that for a while, and then I realized, oh, I know, Bertha. It's the name Bertha. <laughs> you know, white girls are not baptized Bertha. <laughs> and uh, so... I was, I think, 20, 
25 or 26 or something at the time, and I had a lot more nerve then than I did now, so I was basically getting ready to say, okay, yes. <laughs> you know, the, the other reason they thought I was black was because, uh, you know, I come from basic white trash in the South, and they thought that black people in the South act like basic white trash people in the South. I mean, they didn't know better. And, so forth. So I thought, well, I'll just write and say, you got it. You've got a black writer, a black woman writer who does a lot of kinky sex as well. And we'll, we'll all be fine and we'll do very well as long as we admit the traditional uh, photograph of the author on the book jacket. <laughs> um, but I got stopped. I don't know how that came out. Uh, I also would like to say, too, that I had the honor of being one of Audrey Lord's first publishers. We were both uh, 20 years old, and she was at Hunter, and I was in, um, at the Woman's College of the University of North Carolina, which was one hotbed of lesbianism. <laughs> and very modernist sort of education, um, as I, and lesbianism is rather modernist, I think. And um, so I got there. That's why I can say I was a practicing homosexual when I was 17, because I don't know, I was in bed with this, this uh, modern dance major from Detroit one night. <laughs> and it was, this was a school for poor girls, you understand. I played poker to get myself through this school. <laughs> and with a lot of drunk middle-aged guys, you know, on Saturday afternoon, it's not that I'm that good, but I'll be happy to do a game with you. And um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so there I was, and suddenly this, the dean of, dean of the school, who was this closet queer woman named Catherine Taylor, who was, you know, the word was that she was having a, a lustful, lustful afternoons with, his, with the director of the student union, his name, and I swear to God, this is true, Elvira Prondecky. <laughs> and, and everybody called her Prondecky and all that. So I was in bed with this, my friend there, and, um, and, you know, the key was in the lock and the ceiling light snapped on and, ah, you know. And, well, I spent most of the rest of my time in college. I, she couldn't expel me because I was just too good to expel. She'd never get away from it. And another job I had was being a stringer for the local newspaper. And so, of course, I would go to the newspaper and write all about this. And I was already writing about it in the literary magazine and in, the, um, in a little column I had in the student paper. But I would say I was writing about art. <laughs> and all the lesbians on, on campus understood exactly what I was talking about. <laughs> you know, I was doing a big review of Dame Myra Hess, who was a famous lesbian, of course, but I didn't know that then. And I thought there is something about the way this woman plays the piano, you know, and so forth. Art, art, art. Well, the college dean, since she was a queer, knew what I was talking about. Otherwise, she wouldn't have come into my room so rudely without knocking that night. <laughs> anyway, as I said, she couldn't expel me, so I was forced to live in the infirmary for the rest of my college career. <laughs> now, you've already gotten two classic elements here. We've got a closet queer, we've got somebody who is suddenly out of the closet, and we've got a, a hom an open homosexual being treated as a sick person, <laughs> mentally ill as well, because I, in order to stay in school too, I had to see the shrink every Wednesday. He was imported especially from Chapel Hill for me. 
uh, once in a while I would freak out because I had to be in that infirmary by 9 o'clock every night unless it was an event of high culture. I could go to that and go to classes and all that sort of thing. Anyway, it went on and on like that. They, they threw the girl I was in bed with out of college um, and her father forced her to marry her high school boyfriend. She had been planning to go to New York and study with Martha Graham. Uh, this is hard. Anyway, um, finally the upshot of it, I, d I, did, I was able to graduate and um, the dean at the very end said to me, if only you hadn't written about it, none of this would have happened. Mm -hmm. So um, I tried to get in touch with that woman who was thrown out of that school um, and she committed suicide three months after she had to get married to this, her high school boyfriend and it wasn't suicide, it was murder. And if anybody thinks differently, <laughs> leave now. Anyway, so uh, I don't know really what else I was going to say. I brought Monique's book, books because she was going to be here but she couldn't come and I just thought we might get to look at them for a while. <laughs> um, yeah, the, yes. Um, the, uh, God, it's, it, to be as old as I am and to have been out so long, I mean, I could go on for hours, but I think because Jill is sitting here with me, I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Um, uh, Jill's columns in The Voice, uh, which started, which were collected under, the, her columns in the 60s were dance columns where she covered brilliantly and with antic wit and sensitivity. She covered the avant-garde in New York better than anybody has ever done. And I don't think that the New York art world has been that grateful to her because nobody else in town was doing it right the way Jill was doing it right. Um, so she became a sort of literary hero for me when I was reading her columns in the 60s and then suddenly her <coughs> columns changed. And uh, they got, and <laughs> she wasn't writing just about art anymore if you see what I mean. Um, so, and I have this tendency to confuse lesbianism with art, um, but um, anyway, so it, she gradually began to come out and she began to do this extraordinary dance of her personality, which this illuminating rev revelation of personality that established her, as far as I was concerned, as one of the bravest and strongest and most brilliant writers of her generation and ours. So after a while, Jill became not only my literary hero, she became my sex hero, and I, I got in touch with her as quickly as I can, could. And along with Jill, and Jill and Jane O'Wyatt, and Esther Newton, and Louise Fishman, and Phyllis Berkby, uh, we became sort of girl gangsters back in the early 70s. We sort of did, z didn't we? Yes, yes, we did, we did zaps and so forth. And I remember one time, and Jill and maybe Jane Wyatt and I were in the executive offices of in the NBC building when Jill was, I think, talking on the radio. And um, I don't know, I, I, 
this is sort of it. Well, you don't mind. I mean, <laughs> we 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 wrote with we wrote lesbians ignite all over the NBC executive offices with <laughs> with magic markers. Uh, we were really. I think we were doing something important um, <laughs> because, I mean, clearly we were a case of arrested development and proud of it. Um, but it was a feeling that we were the only lesbians in town. And um, we felt very beleaguered. We knew all the names of all the artists and all the writers and all the academics and all the intellectuals in New York who were in the closet. We knew every goddamn last one of them, and most of them are still in the closet. They were not there when we needed them. And so perhaps you'll forgive our behavior a little bit. We were also angry. And we were not getting what we deserved, and our careers were being aborted because we were working. Well, yeah, we were in it for cheap thrills, but we were also, <laughs> we also knew that we had no choice. No. I think each of us felt that we could not live or breathe another minute locked up as we were. And um, I want to, and Jill made that possible for me by the dint of her artistry and her personality. Um, I told, I think, what did I tell? I told Marty Duberman, I said that when a doctor, when the doctor tells me I've got six weeks, I'm going straight off to act up with a list. <laughs> However, it was it was rough out there for for a long time, and and but before I say say anything discouraging, if I could send a postcard from the past to the present and to those who were who stayed in the closet back then, I would like it to read "Having a wonderful time. Wish you were here." Okay, that's enough for now. I, um, I, I wasn't told to do anything either, but I uh, wrote something because I'm in the habit of doing that, and, and um, so I'm sorry about that. I, I can't, you know, talk so eloquently as you people off the cuff. I, simply impossible for me. Um, well, um, we were uh, at Bertha and uh, and uh, the architect Phyllis. Berkby and uh, graphic designer and writer Jana Wyatt and anthropology professor and writer Esther Newton and uh, painter Louise Fishman and my and I mainly we congregated in a house uh, in um, uh, in southern Massachusetts and um, we didn't know really what we were doing there we were had a sort of a soap opera of course there was that that did exist but um apart from that and we were perhaps having a retreat and we talked about an old lesbian's home a lot um and um uh i wanted to um uh well i i i can't i just can't say the things i should say about bertha because uh, i mean she she's um she's in a very she was a very adorable person and then she uh, ran away from all of us, and or she ran away from me, and she told me the other day that 
The reason was because one time she came to my house and walked in the door and I told her she was competing with me. And then I never saw her again for 20 years until, until just now, actually. <laughs> uh, but uh, in those days, we, we weren't so much friends together as we were uh, political cousins and, and fr uh, friends. Uh, we, we didn't talk much together about, a, about what was going on with us. And, and uh, so, uh, so that, that was really what happened. Um, so this is the this is the piece that uh, it, it has a couple of elements from a piece I wrote uh, for for the Times Book Review that's that um, my editor there tells me is going to be published next month called uh, the Making of Autobiography and um, so go, uh, the first this is in little chapters uh, one I've read somewhere that women transform themselves or set themselves on some path of achievement only after an awakening. I don't know if this is so true anymore. I'm sure it was generally true before the early 1970s. Before then, I had two awakenings myself, both of them pertaining to the vocation of writing. Uh, quite inconveniently, my first coincided with marriage and motherhood, causing a conflict of interest and a burden of responsibility which was simply untenable at that time without extraordinary support. That was in 1957 to 58. My calling, quote unquote, was nothing more romantic than writing criticism. It was a powerful summons nonetheless, and I was undeterred in its pursuit for seven years, plying my trade in a New York weekly newspaper, in the end helping to cost me my new family. The conflict over personal achievement and family responsibility also contributed to my second awakening. Now it was the mid-60s, when waking up was a kind of epidemic, highly, commun highly communicable and often fatal. Uh, it was nearly fatal for me, but as I survived, another career as a writer hove into view. This time, my awakening, awakening was a, of an interior nature. I actually just, uh, discovered just then that things were going on inside me, that I had a whole life of thoughts, feelings, attitudes rooted in a past that had been conducting itself autonomously, disconnected from my surface life of ideas and activities. Once I recovered from this, quote, awakening, unquote, I became strongly motivated to write about myself instead of others, or rather the work of others. I converted my criticism in the newspaper into a personal anecdotal column, and by 1969 had signed a first book contract to write with the, title of, uh, with the working title of Autobiography. Two, uh, I've read somewhere that all women are lesbians, except those who don't know it yet, and that and that until all women are lesbians, there will be no true political revolution. What does this mean? Until 1969, I never heard the word lesbian uttered in private or in public. <clears throat> you could read the word by searching out some clinical or Kinsey-type research literature. My autobiographical project was only a year or so old when the Stonewall riots happened. I was traveling with a woman I wanted to marry and sending reports back to my paper which were apparently not veiled enough not to be detected by two advanced lesbians of the Gay Liberation Front, and these two women came after me. Uh, soon I was going to their meetings. Then I went to a meeting of feminists where I heard T. Grace Atkinson say that feminism is a theory and lesbianism a practice. I believe I turned into a feminist lesbian right then. I didn't like, I didn't like being relegated to bed while other women the ones who slept with men supposedly did all the thinking. 
Anyway, I had already thought through the basic lesbian uh, revolutionary position. This wasn't hard. I remember yelling my head off at that meeting to say the obvious, that lesbians were avant to, plus avant d'avance, because we had the least to do with the sex that enslaved and impressed us. We went on to say that the objective was to stop being, quote, real women, unquote, to stop being either women or men at all, which under patriarchy essentially means the refusal to be heterosexual. Now, what we mean when we say that until all women are lesbians, there will be no true political revolution is that until women give to themselves and each other what they have always been required to give men, i.e. primary attention and interest, with the difference, however, of mutuality, we will continue to live under patriarchy. Heterosexuality is the social system of the fa father's dominance. The fight for the definition of women as a class was for the dif disappearance of this class, thus the end of heterosexuality as we know it. We have no idea yet what heterosexuality might be under conditions of equality. The struggle to identify women as a class could not have been what Betty Friedan had in mind when she said, quote, lesbians are the embarrassment we had to endure, unquote. And who wants to find yours truly as, quote, the biggest enemy of the movement, unquote. Three, I've read that we were as crazy as anything we were trying to change. It's true that lesbians had a lot of problems. Um, to become self-identified for a start was like trying to say you had a disease that had long been contained. Its name was simply not in use. Then if you said it, it could be catching. Indeed, that's what's bothering the military right now. <laughs> but they're wrong if they think the ones who say it, who self-identify, will be the aggressive, quote, disease carriers, unquote. In my own experience, anyway, once I said it, I was regarded as a very desirable, disease-ridden person <laughs> <laughs> with whom the, quote, healthy ones, unquote, would be delighted to be contaminated. Believe me, a great epidemic raged in the women's movement, and the world at large still knows nothing about it. But sex, since that's what I'm talking about right here, was another big problem for lesbians for whom sex per se was or was supposed to be irrelevant to their revolutionary position. It was a problem to begin with since to self-identify as lesbian was to be perceived as sexual period, like saying a frog is a frog because it has sex and it never sits on a rock in the sun or anything else. It was probably this singular definition of myself as sexual that gave me the franchise I had for several years in a man's paper to run on at great, great length about myself and women once I said who or what I was. I mean the curiosity, the prurience of the man was there. The revolution itself was a gift of the male-owned media. This is what made the women so mad about leaders, having leaders at all, mostly writers, all male media created. Anyhow, another problem for the lesbians, this one more intramural, was the great unresolved and hidden mother-daughter issue that existed, and I suppose still ex continues to exist, between them. Lesbians, by and large, after all, have been women who failed to identify properly with their subservient, self-sacrificing, male-dependent, and objectified mothers. These daughters are the revolutionary women we want. But since lesbians have not been able to identify themselves, they have long memories, centuries old, of the mothers they rejected and or who rejected them. So they naturally tend to want these mothers, the women they knew best, to have that intimacy again, and this is a sort of fatal attraction, and it plagued and perhaps still plagues the lesbian movement, though I, never heard it, though I never saw it written anywhere or heard it said either. 
It's a parallel phenomenon, surely, to the queer men who want, quote, real men, unquote, for their lovers, some disguised version of the fathers who rejected them for not being real men like themselves or who, who didn't want them to be for one reason or another. For myself, as a desirable, disease-ridden person, the most wished for and fatal kind of lover was the kind of mother who would adore and abandon me, abandon me just like my mother. And because of this endemic problem, one must ask whither the revolution, when the bonding of mutually appreciative, independent women is the goal, how should sex figure in, under what conditions, etc. I've read Monique Fatigue, who has said, quote, a text by a minority writer, this is, this is chapter four, I've read Monique Fatigue, who has said, a text by a minority writer is efficient only if it succeeds in making the minority point of view universal, only if it is an important literary text. Remembrance of things past is a monument of French literature, even though homosexuality is the theme of the book, unquote. I would amend the first part of this statement to read, quote, a text by a minority writer only succeed, succeeds if it becomes an important literary text, unquote. Then we could say that the stigmatized subject, any minority, has been overlooked, forgiven, in being subsumed under great literature. Fatigue's comment about Proust bears this out. Proust's work, quote, is a monument of literature, even though homosexuality is a theme, unquote. But Proust became a monument before the homosexuality in his text was decoded or widely understood. Around 1969, when I had my political awakening and found out that men ran the world and that I was a member of quite a few minorities, I embarked on my third career as a writer. This time, however, I found myself juggling a very hermetic, personal, free associative style developed in my column during the late 60s after uh, discovering I had an interior life with the demands of, of political exposition and diatribe. In my own view, politics definitely cramped my style. Between 69 and 75 or so, I was split between the personal, the literary, and the political, seesawing. Had an interior life with the demands of, of political exposition and diatribe. In my own view, politics definitely cramped my style. Between 69 and 75 or so, I was split between the personal, the literary, and the political, seesawing between them or trying to crossbreed them and convincing new forms. I also had my hand at creating the, quote, universality, unquote, of the minority point of view, quote, quote, with Lesbian Nation, a very personal and political track, but not a unified text, unlike Fatigue's The Lesbian Body and Les Guerrières, by the way, where her feminist lesbian advocacy dovetailed with her textual innovations. In my next book venture, the sec and second attempt at writing an autobiography per se, I opted for literature, aiming to write the third unreadable book of the century, <coughs> following Joyce and Stein. I don't know what Joyce had to hide, unless it was his schizophrenic daughter, Lucia. But Gertrude Stein's monumentality, after all, was due largely to how she obscured her homosexuality by saying effectively nothing in an outstanding and prolific way. <laughs> Under contract with the Random House Corporation, 1974-75, to write a book called My Father in America, I felt constrained to hide the very subject of my title. After delivering 430 pages in a single paragraph, all lowercase, <laughs> <laughs> 
minimally punctuated. My editor was outraged that he couldn't find my father in it. <laughs> uh, nor much of anything else, I wager. The work was jammed with appropriations, uncredit uncredited quotes, seasoned with neologisms, and studded with non sequitur, that smashing device for evasion, digression, obscuration, escape. Five, and last, I've read Clive James's unre unreliable memoirs in which he says that his ideal of autobiography had been set by Alfieri, an Italian dramatist and poet, whose description of a duel he once fought in Hyde Park is mainly concerned with how he ran backwards to safety. After 1975, I was definitely doing that, though it never seemed necessarily ideal. As I understand now, though, a war was over and the losers, the backlash against women already on invisible drawing boards and against lesbians a fait accompli, had to jump ship and swim for their lives or go down in a whoosh and bubbles of mar martyrdom. It was not hard for me to choose. Instinctively, I struck out for sure, not having the least idea what I would find there. At first, I found now writing around it all. To the right of me, the establishment said no, they would not support me any longer in my outrages. To the left of me, the radicals whose causes I had adopted and championed said no, they would not rescue me from the establishment. But discovering my mother, from whom I had long been estranged, evidently I was reminded of my conservative upbringing, and at length I sat down before a blank page and sculpted a sentence and then another and another, as if I were writing a primer. The pieces I wrote then, printed in the same newspaper that had cut me adrift, were perhaps as close as writing can get to the still life an excess of speed had turned into repose. During that period of the late 70s, I reoriented myself to syntax and common usage. This became important for my autobiographical project because the style of improprieties to which I had become accustomed had not proved the best vehicle for getting my story across. Now the writing was all about writing, and concurrently, my mother was getting ready to die. I believe I was turning into her. I was having a new awakening as my mother. She had been a critic of my writing, had said it embarrassed her, that she wished I would write fiction. My fourth career as a writer was already underway. The project then, and continues to be now, how to be her, she was my mother after all. I had once loved her, and there were things about her to admire, and be myself at the same time. What we mean when we say all women are lesbians is that we all grow up to need the mother, whom we once had, as much as little boys. Possibly the first crime committed against women was the transference of affection and bonding we were required to make to the non-childbearing, non-nurturing, raised to be self-interested and hostile to us, sex. As revolutionary women, lesbians have the incredible opportunity to provide an example in learning how not to try to exploit the mother once they find one. And we all know how difficult it is to find any in a world in which the sons already have such total dibs on them. And to be mothers to that, to that mother themselves. Once lesbians figure this out, I believe we can have the world call it lesbian empire. Irene? Well, these are several <coughs> acts hard to follow. Does that take the, the expression? Um, as I'm uh, here I, uh, listening and uh, also for the last 
couple of days I have very much been thinking about this panel and what to say and uh, I have very few thoughts I I'm would like very much to very soon open the, 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 the evening to questions and I, I may be um, much more uh, capable of answering questions than I am of, of uh, uh, just simply speaking. Except that, that I, as I have been listening to the other speakers, I have had a, um, a recurrent thought, which is, um, I was just remembering uh, yesterday I had a, a, the photographer was taking my picture and we were talking a great deal as she was taking the pictures and at some point she said to me well then you are an American aren't you and I said yes I am an American and then I thought almost an American uh, and this she said because I, she asked me uh, how long had I lived in the United States and I said uh, uh, 40, 40, uh, 47 years. And uh, she probably thought I was younger than I was, and that's why she thought I was, <laughs> I had spent most of my life here. Uh, but as I, uh, I'm, as I'm listening now, the, the thought that has um, passed through my mind several times is I'm the only Hispanic in this panel. And the, the reason why I've thought that is but I feel that one great difference uh, between be an American and a Hispanic is that Americans expect for the nation, for the government, for the society they live in, to recognize them. They expect to be a part of that government or nation or society that they live in. And Hispanics don't. Hispanics have, um, I don't think that they, they have at any given point given up on it. I think maybe it's, it's, uh, it's a very old um, inheritance that has never been uh, changed uh, um, from any of the many revolutionary movements in South America. It always ends up that your country is not your country, but it's the country of whoever is is uh, the leading, and people know that. There are times, I mean, this is not the first time that I have this thought. There are times when I think that Americans are naive to think that their society will or should recognize them and respect them, or that they have a share in what it does or what it thinks. And there are times that I think that Americans are right in thinking that, and that Hispanics are simply damaged in, 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 in their growing years, that sense of having that right to be a part of their, of, of their society has been damaged in a, such a serious way that it never even occurs to them that they should be a part of it. Um, the result of that is that I feel personally, um, and I cannot speak for other uh, Hispanic artists, but because I have not talked to them very much about this issue, but I feel personally that my life, my work, 
is that I am the I am the guardian of my life and I am the guardian of my work. That I, it is I who have to take care of it and protect it. It never occurs to me to expect that it my work should be understood or respected or protected by others. And when they do, I am very grateful. And when if they don't, they they mm, there are times when I'm disappointed because I, there are times when I do, there's a particular person or an institution that I expect that, that this, this is a, per, a place where, where I will be uh, well received and when they don't, it, it, it surprises me and it hurts me. But, but it hurts me emotionally. It's not that it, you know, it, it hurts you the way you expect a person would be a friend of yours and, the, and it turns out that they're not interested in being your friend at all. You know, that, this is the kind of, more on a emotional uh, uh, disappointment rather than one of, of feeling you have the, a right to something. Uh, that's in relation to my work, also in relation to my um, emotional or sexual life or, um, or my aesthetic, my tastes, that I feel um, that I, I've never expected the for 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 the world to uh, to uh, consider me cons to consider my vote as as important or my or my uh, <coughs> or for for me to be counted among the uh, in in that kind of general general citizenship kind of of uh, situation. That this is all that I can contribute so far, and, and I hope that uh, that as the discussion continues, that I may be able to to contribute a little more. I just have a question, question which is watching the time because no one told me, and I just want to have a sense of sorry. Okay, good. Well, if it's going to be 7.15, then I think maybe we should open it up and I'll ask questions if it lags. I sort of doubt that it will. Um, so, you know, we've got these weird bright lights flat, and I think that there are, are there microphones for people? Okay. Are, are there people with questions? I have one. Oh, well, that's easy. I'd like to ask uh, Ms. Fourness what her sexual orientation is. I'm a lesbian. Thank you. <laughs> it was unclear. <laughs> but may, I mean, maybe there's a question that can go somewhat further than that, which is <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, I mean, I think Irene is in the interesting position of being on a panel where the people to the right of me have spoken quite strongly about um, so the political intertwining of sexuality with aesthetics. And then there is Irene, who I think tr actually did, I, I found, to be a very kind of touching talk about, and I'd like to get her to go further, perhaps, that because well, you know, we had a talk about sort of issues of privacy that I thought was also, and in terms of aesthetics, I mean, it's, I mean, maybe you can talk to some of this more in relationship to how you do your characters, why you're, you know, 
it, your, your writing isn't particularly lesbian, then what, you know, what informed those kind of decisions? How do you go about writing well, your plays? Um, um, I, 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 I don't decide what I'm going to write about. I mean, I start writing and uh, the writing evolves itself. I am more like a, uh, a servant of, of, of that creative in, in impulse than, than deciding what, what it's going to be. However, that doesn't mean that everything that's, that's, that's coming out of that creative system is not coming from, from, uh, from me. It's, 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 you know, I'm, I'm not saying uh, I'm, I, I am responsible for everything I, I write, and, and I agree with everything. In fact, there are times when my creative system does begin to write something that I say, well, I'll, I'll let it out because it has to come out of my system, but I, I'll burn this. <laughs> you know, it, it's not something that I... That uh, that uh, that I like, um, but um, uh, what was I going to say? No, that's my answer. Is that <laughs> did I answer you? That's an answer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I feel that uh, um, I, I I feel that rather than political, and perhaps this is what politics is. My my work often, uh, I think most of the time, maybe always, has to do with justice and in injustice. There is uh, an element which is, uh, I suppose, more humanistic than political. Although I don't know that you can really make a, a distinction, you know, the separation between the two. You, you're there for a question, right? Okay. We can hear you, but we won't be able to see you. That's all. Oh, okay. Um, I have just two questions for Irene. Uh, first, what? Country. Uh, <laughs> 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 okay. Yeah. What what uh, country are you from? Cuba. Cuba. Okay. And my other question was, uh, is it your feeling uh, that we have, as Hispanics, one Hispanic to another, uh, that um, you feel it's more emotional for us and not political because of our upbringing? Yes, I, I, I think it has to do a great deal with, uh, with living in societies that are um, uh, so corrupt that there is no, no chance of ever placing your, your trust. I mean, it's, 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 it's absurd, ridiculous for any uh, Latin American, at least, and, and, and probably Spanish too, to, to think of, of, of government of society as, as, as a place to look at, uh, to, to give you to give you uh, uh, confidence, to give you respect, to give you, you know, maybe you, you may think more of family uh, uh, to find that to, to the person you love, the person you're in love with or the person that you, that you uh, are going to spend the rest of your life with, to, to your family, your children, uh, but never to government. That, that would be like maybe there are a couple of people in the, in the madhouse who, 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 who think that, who thought that at some point. But it's completely out of the question. You can see how a person develops in a very different, different way. Now, what we, I think what we were talking about before has to do with a little bit something more with uh, creativity, that I think there are different kinds of creativity, um, that the creativity of, uh, of my creativity is, is one that if it gets exposed um, even to, my, to me, in, uh, to, to other people, but to me, if it gets 
exposed before it's completed, it kind of shuns away. I don't even, when I start writing, I don't know what I'm writing about. And if I discuss it, if I talk about it, if I show it to anyone, it, then I really lose it completely. I don't know what, I, what I'm doing. That is, I connect that a little bit with a sense of privacy. The privacy of uh, the artistic uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, creativity, that privacy and the privacy of one's own emotional life and one's own sexuality. My work is very sexual, but the sexuality of my characters is never really sexual. It's really dealing with something else. There's something very extreme and grotesque, not grotesque in a way that is not real, in a way that's very real, but that in some way is not even sexual, but it has to do with some kind of mad expression of the personality. Uh, my work is very violent, but that too has to do not with actual, the actual violence of real life where you, where there may be a battered wife or a child, uh, or a child. It, there are, there are uh, cases of where appear to be that, but it always has to do with something else. Um, I, I feel that, I, I'll, I'll tell you something that's interesting. This is a, a, a film script that I have been working on. And actually, somebody said to me, why don't you write uh, 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 lesbian stories, lesbian? And, and I have, I have uh, written two. One is a, a, a one-act play, which is part of, of, a, of, a four, of a quartet. And it's a love story between two, two women. And the other one is one that was commissioned by Lourdes Portillo, who is a filmmaker. Who, who she's, she's, uh, she directed uh, and, and uh, produced uh, a documentary of the uh, mothers of the disappeared. Who uh, it was a documentary that was very, very um, highly uh, respected about six years ago. Was that? Um, and and she wanted me to write this story, which was about this lesbian, this uh, lesbian Hispanic girl who, who goes to live in San Francisco. And 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 so I, you know, I wrote it, and I wrote it because she, you know, she, it was based uh, somewhat on someone that that she knew. But I, I changed the story a lot, and and um, so and I got to really like this, the, the the characters enormously, and, and 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 I love working on it. And then when I showed her the first draft, she said to me, "But can you can we have a new uh, an, uh, a love scene, a, a sex scene, uh, 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 with nudity?" And I said, "No." And, and she said, and she said, please, 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 please. She actually she said, and I said, no. And she said, please, please. All she said was, please, please. And I said, what do you want that just to see ass? Are you tired of seeing ass? Why would you want to see more ass? I mean, because you see, and I realized that that's how I see sexuality in films. I see it as just ass. <laughs> however, however, when, when, uh, when it has something to do, not with just love making, but with some kind of I the, the inner pa passion, some kind of inner passion, which in a way is not even sexual, but some, then it bursts out. And I, it isn't that I choose it and I say, well, now I'm going to have uh, sex that is not sexual, but that's in a passion. It's just that it never, it never emerges as as normal sex, it was say as 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 every, it emerges in a different way. 
In the same way that I always, I never write about my own personal life, about anything that has to do with me. Of course, everything I write has to do with my personal life, but it's not in a direct way that you, that, and it's not that I'm hiding, it's, if I'm hiding, it's, I'm hiding in a very profound way. I'm not hiding like I'm saying, oh, this I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't mention. Are there other questions? Or comments. They don't have to ask questions. They Blanche. can also make comments. Blanche. Or comments. <laughs> Blanche. I can't stand up to ask this, OK? But I would like to know um, from the panel in general, but from Bertha specifically, do you think that writers have to address lesbianism as a subject directly? That lesbian writers have to address lesbianism as a subject? Yes. <laughs> Excuse me? Um, do I think uh, whether, and this is directed at the panel at large, whether um, lesbian writers must or f feel compelled, a, a real lesbian writer might feel compelled to address lesbianism uh, specifically in her work? Um, and the answer was yes. Um, I, I say in the process of writing about you can't avoid it. how can you write? You can't avoid it. How can you avoid it if in the process of writing about everything? You say something. Sure, why not? Um, <laughs> well, one of the things that my grandmother told me and it used to really infuriate me too, I'm sure some of you have heard this, is that the only thing, two things you have to do is stay black and die. So obviously you don't have to, you know, write as an out lesbian. Um, however, and notice that paying taxes wasn't in there either, because that wasn't even that relevant, you know. <laughs> but the thing is, the, it's a very nihilistic view, but it's also an uh, accurate view of what uh, black life was like in the early part of this century and even now today. But in any event, um, I think the thing about lesbian literature, or what we think of as lesbian literature, if it is not revealed in the writing, we don't know that it is. In other words, how do we identify, you know, if we don't see subject matter, cues, an aesthetic, whatever. I don't think that everything that a lesbian write, writes has to be about being a lesbian. But the thing is, in order to let other lesbians and perhaps other kinds of people, gay men, non-lesbians, non-gay men, uh, to let them know, you know, that we're lesbian writers, putting the subject matter in there helps. So that's kind of, you know, that's kind of my perspective. I feel that um, often people write um, because of something they're starving to say. Um, I know that Toni Morrison said that the reason she wrote The Bluest Eye is because she had never read a book like that and she figured if she ever was going to read a book that was true about African American women, she'd have to write it herself. And I think that uh, a lot of us feel that way, those of us you know, who see ourselves as uh, not minority writers, because I'm not a part of any minority groups, but um, none. <laughs> I don't care about numbers, you know. I look at the globe and I know I'm, a, I'm in the majority almost everywhere you look. Uh, and that includes being a lesbian. <laughs> I mean, who knows? I mean, we don't know, you know. Who gives us those statistics? We don't know, you know. I don't take their word for anything. But the thing is, <laughs> the thing is that um, I think it's just really important, you know, um, for those of us, you know, who are 
inherently invisible because of the politics of the countries, plural, that we inhabit, that if we're going to put out lifelines to people, we got to do it with clarity. You know, we got to, you know, I mean, some people think, I guess I'm proscriptive about being out, but the thing is, I, just like you were talking about, knowing all those uh, artists, writers, dancers, etc., in the early 70s, I know the ones today who are black and female and who are making out like fat rats, getting over like fat rats because they're closeted, you know? And uh, I think it's important to say who you are. Truth is really very disarming. There's so little of it that if you tell it, it goes a long way. Well, for the sake of argument, I'd like to say it can also kill you, you know. Uh, I, it, it's, it's, the thing is, is that I think that, and I, Blanche and I have talked about this earlier, we, uh, it's, anything a lesbian writes is generally so goddamn weird, you know, you just cannot possibly you know, Blanche wrote something about a woman deflowering her own self. Now, as she pointed out, only a lesbian could have thought of that. <laughs> you know, and, but there is such a thing, you know, and I, I, you know, some people thought my novel Lover wasn't all that lesbian. Then I thought, well, it's true. It, it is too that lesbian uh, because I wrote it to seduce a woman. And so all that was involved in it. And um, is, that, is that clear in it? Y yeah, I think so. I mean, <laughs> when <laughs> I mean, there's, 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 it's, it's very, it's sort of, you know, very sort of modernist type of book, and 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 it's not doesn't have a strong conventional narrative or anything like that. But it, it, it also, I was doing something too that I wanted to do, and that was to incorporate the personal stories of women who don't write, lesbians who don't write, but who needed a, a way. So half of Lover, for instance, is just stuff lesbians told me, you know, what, what they were doing and what, um, you know, what their men were doing to them and what men had done to them and so forth and so on. I, I don't know. I'm also an opera queen, and I'm a southerner, and uh, you know, and I used to be a teacher, and so all of that stuff is in there too. But that's very lesbian. <laughs> so is Joe Bob Briggs. <laughs> I think you're going to have to start louder. What? Doing what? <laughs> Excuse me? What? Playing? Playing? I'll repeat the question. I'll repeat the question. <laughs> Gregory Babcock used to say, what is that? A friend of mine used to say that the definition of a bisexual is somebody who has sex twice a year. <laughs> well, my point of view uh, about that, 
I think people should do whatever they want to do. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's really, I feel like it's not my business. Just like I don't want people telling me what I should do as far as like who I have relationships with. I don't want other, I don't think I should be telling other people to, 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 to what they should do either. I think the most important thing is like what side of struggle you're on. Uh, if, you know, if uh, bisexuals and heterosexuals and transsexuals and transvestites and all other you know, kinds of gender configurations, if they're on the right side of struggle, I don't really care who they have these, you know, their relationships with. Right. That's not the point, you know? And I think, I, I don't know, there's, some, there's something that we're getting away from here, you know? I feel like we're getting away from some bottom lines here. I don't know why I feel that way. But the thing is that um, as lesbians, you know, we are an oppressed group, you know. Uh, we need support for our existences wherever we can find it. It's not going to be on TV, most likely. It's not going to be in the movies either. It's not going to be on the streets or in corporations, even though I read these horrible articles about, you know, lesbians and gay men and corporations. But, you know, I know that's nobody I know, you know. Because <laughs> my... I mean, our thing is to have jobs. We could just have jobs, you know, as black people and as people of color. That would be great. But Bertha said, you know, that by being out, we're talking about being out and how important it is to be out um, in writing and art so that other people know that you exist and that they can exist too. She said it can kill you too. The only way it kills you is if you don't have community. Right. If you have community, then you can do it. Those of us who did it, I think, did it because we had a sense of community. And if we didn't find one, you know, in the Sears catalog, we built it. Well, I was going to say that I think we don't care what people do, um, uh, what kind of relationships they have, as long as they're not beat up in them. That's good, too. As long as they're not beat up in them. Um, Could the questions come to, to the mics, please, so that they'll be recorded? I just want to yell something out. I don't know how this is getting on. But I just feel like you were talking about sexual freedom and, and how we should extend it to each other. And it seems to me that like all the talk about whether it's lesbian writing or not is kind of like oppositional. And I think we should be able to extend that sort of freedom to each other in our writing. Yeah. And, and I <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> I'm going out for a cigarette. Who's that? I didn't hear. Look, I, nobody uh, here is taking anybody's freedoms away from them. Because I was unsure, nothing what she said had told me that she. 
No, I don't. <laughs> if you're going to ask questions, please come to the front so you can be recorded. That would have been a nice thing to have recorded. If you're asking questions, come up to the front so you can be recorded. So instead, just come on up and we'll work with the line. Hi. Hi. I have a question actually that addresses sort of what Irene Fortas has mentioned before. Louder. This is about, um, this addresses something that you said before, Irene. And this is. Um, <laughs> Go closer. Go closer. Hear me? What's going on? Turn it on. Hello? It doesn't sound like it's on. The mic is on. Go four inches from your mouth. <laughs> that was ominous. Can you hear me? If they don't hear it, we'll repeat it. Just go on. All right. I, I have a loud voice usually, so I think you can hear me if you're listening. This addresses something that um, Irene Fornes had said before, and basically the difference between is between generations for Asian Americans is is the same as what you were saying, and that is that Asian Americans expect to be included in American society. And, and I've noticed also that there are not many Asian Americans, not, not only on the panel, but in, in the audience. I feel like, and I feel that you know, this, this should be a question that is addressed about multiculturalism. Because there are a lot, of, you know, there has been a movement in the lesbian you know, community to be inclusive. But I think, I mean, instead of you know, trying to answer the question by putting an Asian American up there, because I think that lends itself to tokenism, I would like to hear maybe the you know different panelists, maybe not just Irene, talk to talk about how this you know this problem can be solved, or what some of the you know you know answers might be for this. The problem of of inclusion. Of, uh, mm -hmm. Well, it seems to me that this might be a time to talk about kitchen table, women of color press. Um, no, really, I mean because. You know, for the last 12 years, that's been a place where the voices of all women of color uh, have been um, publicized, have been published, uh, have been made available. And um, it's been hard. You know, we haven't published nearly as many books as the white women's presses, you know, but we're still here. Some of them are not. And, <laughs> and um, I, I think that, um, I mean, it's a very, the question you asked was very political, which is like, how do you be accountable across identities when you only have a certain set of them, you know? And as I said, for me, Kitchen Table has been a means of uh, putting those politics into practice. Uh, Audrey and I started Kitchen Table, uh, you know, kind of together. She called me in the fall of 1980. She was coming to Boston to do a black women's poetry reading on Halloween and uh, she said Barbara we really need to do something about publishing and all of and and both of us had been involved in independent publishing um, before that and knew what it was to be tokenized you know in that context 
And so I said, well, I'll get together a meeting, because I truly understood why she said we needed to do something about publishing. And the thing is, I did get together a meeting. Uh, the first, all the women who came to that first meeting were of African origin, either African American or African Caribbean. But we made the decision at that meeting to be a press for all women of color. I don't have our catalogs with us, but if you look at the list, you see that we've, you know, we've made an honest attempt, you know, to be inclusive. I think that in this society, that is defined by racism, that different groups have different, um, what's the word, different images to the oppressor as far as uh, where they rank us. You know, often they pit us against each other, you know, as people of color. Those of us who are smart and those of us who are principled understand that that's nowhere that we want to be and that we understand something about what we have in common as people who are not white, not male, and not straight. So I guess, as I said, that's my answer. I think that we need to do a lot more, um, not just as kitchen table. I would love for us to be a publishing house that had imprints and lists and children's books and all kinds of things, but of course money is the bottom line and we don't have any. But the thing is that um, I think that as far, since this is a panel about lesbian literature, we're also the most visible organization for lesbians of color in this country nationally, although we're oppressed, because there is not a national political organization, I think, that, you know, uh, kinds of brings us uh, together in that way. We get letters from people that have absolutely nothing to do with publishing, that have everything to do with isolation and uh, with wanting to find, uh, you know, a place to have a voice, even if it's not in print. Uh, I think that the responsibility for inclusiveness in the society, however, finally rests with people who have white skin privilege because after all, they're the ones who set this whole, you know, mishagas up, you know, probably said that wrong. <laughs> but the thing is, they're the ones who set this whole thing up, you know, so it's really up to them. But as a African-American woman, another woman of color, I know I have responsibilities too. Hi. Hi. Um, Speaking as a lesbian feminist and also looking back on the last 20, 25 years, um, it seems that the best contribution of lesbian feminists, although we might not have intended it, was to make everyone else look reasonable. So <laughs> by our uh, cut radicalness and cutting edgeness and our um, loud mouths and antics and et cetera, so now we have Hillary Clinton in the White House and Pat Schroeder and uh, many others. Um, but it seems to me at the same time, we've also become the movement scapegoat in several movements. It seems to me every time I turn around, another lesbian feminist is being trashed and we're called dogmatic and all kinds of things. And I was wondering if you would like to comment on any of that and your experiences now as uh, lesbian feminists. <laughs> Jill? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've been aware that we're being trashed like that. Well, I'm too old to be trashed now. I mean, no, I mean, I mean no, I, we're saying to birth of it. There's an age thing, you know, when we get to be very doddering, then they'll, uh, I guess, dust us off, pull us out of mothballs and say, uh, you know, there's a percentage. Bertha said that somebody called us precious antiques. Uh, and so, uh, if we are, then I'd like, then we would like to know why we're, 
why we're not being paid as antiques. <laughs> um, and I guess that's a problem. Uh, I, I did want to um, thank my uh, partner, lover, companion, and so forth of the last 13 years, Ingrid, uh, who's here, to whom I owe my, I feel I owe my survival throughout the 80s and, and into the 90s. I, th I think that, um, and I am a lesbian feminist, and I, and I have been since, you know, we all started, and they're the great unsung heroes of all the movements which involve sexual heroism as well as every other kind, because uh, they're not perceived as glamorous, uh, but as, as sort of workers, uh, street workers, and so forth. Gay men are often considered glamorous, and uh, you're not going to find a movie written about a brave young lesbian feminist who, you know, wins the ice skating competition or something. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I knew Charlotte Bunch very well for a very long time and, and Rita Mae Brown and back in the, I think, 60s, they were starting, you know, they sort of invented it in, in their collective in Washington, D.C., the, the, the Furies. Furies. And um, Charlotte is somebody I'd like to say is as has unwaveringly served as a lesbian feminist since she was practically a baby. I, it, it seems that way to me now. Um, I don't think this answers your question. Maybe there isn't one. I think homophobia is, is it's just, it, the most difficult to deal with is the daily subtle homophobia that you don't, you can't really see it. You can't, you know it's there. Maybe it's just the, the vibes and, and I think that's the most difficult to deal with. But I know uh, um, some uh, um, a black man I heard recently. Uh, I know it was uh, Arthur Ashe who just died. The tennis was saying, uh, I think on a Charlie Rose show, um, uh, uh, that it, it that he to get up every morning he had to put his head on to to deal with uh, racism and and um, I, I, I feel somewhat that way. I don't. I wouldn't um, want to draw us parallel and, and to uh, like that, but it does. And then you have your friends. I have I have excellent friends, and I'm thinking. I was just thinking of a of a little incident. A, a woman I knew, I've known for thirty uh, on, over thirty years. We pushed our babies in the park together, uh, and. Um, and so we were having, she was having a little dinner party uh, a couple of years ago. And um, she, and, and there were three straight couples there, and Ingrid and myself. And somehow it came about that um, the one couple said, well, we've been married for 30 years. And everybody was saying, that, well, that was great. And the other couple said, well, we've been married for 22 years. I said, well, that's nice. And, so I said, and well, and Ingrid and I have been married 11 years. And there was a pause. And, uh, and my good friend, uh, uh, my, my close old friend said, but you're not married. She didn't really seem to know that what she was, what she was saying. My question has to do with, um, what I, what I would hope would be the promise of literature for lesbians, which is if we, if we think really pie in the sky that one of the things we may achieve, given 
the distance that we have from dominant culture and the fact that we've always been outside of it, it would be to be somewhat liberated and that we would be liberated in ways that would allow us to write characters which create themselves, which to some extent we think we do. It would allow us to break narrative, which some of us think we do. And we have, we've seen some of that with lesbian literature, but in fact most lesbian literature has been rather proscriptive, incredibly narrow with regard to what it thinks a lesbian should be and what it even thinks that being political should be. So I feel like we have, we have something in front of us, which we've had in front of us for as long as lesbians have begun to come out. And even that definition is changing. I would like to hear people talk about that. You know, we, we see it in flashes, but very little is out there, and it's in all of us to do it. And, and I would think that lesbians, I mean, even that idea of lesbian literature, to me, should be something that would be incredibly difficult to define, because it would become very, very broad. Not to say it wouldn't have content, but that we ought to be more poised than almost anyone in our marginality to be free of the canon and to be able to do very different things with it. And we're not doing that. We're not even coming close. I mean, we may be coming closer in some, in some ways, and some people are doing it more than others. But I'm interested in that as a writer, and, and that's what I look for in other lesbian writers. And a lot of people do parts of it, but it's there as, as something that's in front of us. Can you name some um, lesbian novelists, for instance, who you might admire in this regard? I admire a lot of people. I mean, I admire certain, certainly, I would say, um, in the past, people who are out and not out, Gertrude Stein, obviously, contemporaries, I admire Monique Teague, I admire Jeanette Winterson, I admire um, people who I wouldn't necessarily say are lesbians, but who have done things which are breaking out of very narrow definitions mm -hmm. of what we call gender or even female experience. You know, and I think it's something that Irene was talking about. The extent to which you're not allied to that culture or those expectations gives you a certain freedom. And as lesbians, it doesn't seem to me like we're really, ex we're exploring some of it. But because we've needed to identify and de define ourselves and identify with each other, we haven't even begun to look at it. Mm. I thought we had. <laughs> Maybe she should stop reading and see some off-Broadway shows. <laughs> For example, at the Glimes. Well, I would like the panelists to speak to the question, if, if others oh. would want to. Just, it, I mean, I'm saying that people have done it, but, but I'm hoping for more. I'm I've been waiting before things. you to speak. Well, hold and on. I, I'm sorry. Just hold on. Let the panelists speak, questions. and you can be the last question. Uh, I, I would like to say this is not a direct answer to, to your question, but I just a feeling I, I, I have, uh, I got, I don't want in any way um, um, for you to think that I, my speaking about having a different um, feeling about, about making my work uh, a declaration or a confession of, of lesbianism, that I, in no way am I being smug or think, thinking uh, um, that my position is in any way uh, uh, more, uh, I, I don't know what, better than, than, than the people who, who um, speak of their lesbianism and their work. I don't feel smug at all. On the contrary, I do admire, as I've always admired, admire the American spirit. That's why I live here. I do admire that that um, concept that the world should pay attention to you, that you should be a part of the world. I admire it. I just cannot, because of my upbringing, because of the of whatever damage was done to me as in my growing years, I cannot expect. Uh, I mean, in honesty, I cannot expect that 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 this that the world should recognize me as 
as a full member of, the, of, of it. I'd like to respond to your questions too. When you described, um, um, what's the word, uh, deficiencies, I guess, in lesbian literature, you know, like I was thinking, well, she couldn't possibly mean writing by African American women uh, because of the fact, you know, you described it as being, what, proscriptive? Uh, what were some of the other you know, words that you used? I guess kind of narrow and, and, not, and not experimental and not taking risk and what have you. And I was thinking, uh, <laughs> I don't think so. One of the things that I feel when I said that I felt like some bottom lines were getting lost, one of the bottom lines I feel that is lost is what does it mean to be a, both a person who experiences racial you know, ostracism at the very same time one experiences uh, ostracism because of one's gender and one's sexual what's the word, uh, deficiencies, I guess, in lesbian literature, you know, like I was thinking, well, she couldn't possibly mean writing by African-American women uh, because of the fact, you know, you described it as being, what, proscriptive? Uh, what were some of the other, you know, words that you used? I guess kind of narrow and, and, non, and not experimental and not taking risk and what have you. And I was thinking, uh, <laughs> I don't think so. One of the things that I feel when I said that I felt like some bottom lines were getting lost one of the bottom lines I feel that is lost is what does it mean to be a, both a person who experiences racial, you know, ostracism at the very same time one experiences uh, ostracism because of one's gender and one's sexual identity slash orientation. I really feel that there, it's almost impossible to articulate in some ways and I feel like I'm trying to do this for Audrey too, because she always tried to do it. It's almost impossible to articulate what's it, what it means to be simultaneously lesbian and of color to an audience like this, particularly when the questions that are coming back and comments don't necessarily seem to want to address that, except in maybe one or two cases, you know? But I don't see writing by black lesbians as being all those things that you mentioned. I don't necessarily see it as being avant-garde in the, you know, technical, you know, our stylistic sense, but it's definitely outrageous and, you know, against the grain and iconoclastic, even if it is written in fairly conventional, you know, um, uh, ways as far as the technique because of its subject matter, you know. I don't see black literature, I mean, so little is known about the black literary tradition. I feel, particularly in a context like this one, it's almost like I feel like I have this whole thing going on in my head that I can barely articulate, particularly with the clock ticking, you know? But the thing is, for those of us who know that we are writing both in a black literary tradition and a lesbian literary tradition, and put in feminism, I think that we know that we're doing something that has never been done before. I think this whole question about do you identify yourself in your writing or not, I'm sure the next panel will address that. It's a sticky issue. I think that if one does not identify oneself in one's writing, that what the woman back there said, and maybe you or she, <laughs> I can't see anybody, but the comment that was made back there uh, about how if, that it doesn't really make any difference what your subject matter is so long as people know who you are and you identify with the community. I think those, those are the two ways I would define it. You know, I, I don't think you have to write about being, uh, being a lesbian and lesbian themes and lesbian subject matter every single time you sit down. 
Well, that's not know. true, you yeah, know. No, I but so your good. consciousness is lesbian, you know. And it's good to let somebody else know that you are one, because if you don't, there'll be more people committing suicide, <laughs> you know, and more people thinking that it's not possible. You can write about what you bloody please, right? I mean, yeah. just uh, we we hope to have as much identity as possible for 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 us. Mm -hmm. There is such a, I think there's such a thing as a lesbian sensibility and I don't care I mean with really good writers like the artist that this young woman would like to see come about come about and it it you know I think that a very fine artist writing as a poet or as a novelist <coughs> or a playwright um, will inevitably have a, a lesbian consciousness in her work that is going to be perceived as part of the aesthetic process by somebody or it will somehow tie the work I'm not saying that we write with our sexuality but I, I think that the best artists who are lesbians that their sexuality is part of themselves as a as a whole there's, it is not compartmentalized the way it is in so many other people. Um, and I, it just it's what Barbara was saying is true of, of too in this regard. There's so much hostility to the body. <sighs> I've, I've quit. Yeah, I've, uh, I promise there would be one last question. Go ahead. I've been waiting. I'm, I almost thank you for putting me into the so-called bullpen for about 20 minutes. You're welcome. I to raise my hand. I, Anytime. I felt discriminated against because I didn't talk. I didn't see you there, However, but ask your question, all right? I, I have, you've done me a favor. Now I've, not only do I have a dissertation topic, but I have the first three chapters out and I'd like you to help me. I'd like to question the writers uh, to what extent, as you mentioned, variations, to what extent it's, it's uh, dwelt upon the genesis of uh, homoerotic orientation, attitude, and then acting up upon these attitudes. I, for example, know women and men who became homoerotic after they were married and grown children. I think we're biased here in favor of someone who, who became, or who was born that way, or never had another orientation, and, and uh, uh, what's the word, proselytizes on that uh -oh. factor. I personally write, when I write, I write out of pain as well as joy. I'm, I'm sorry. I started, I started a camp uh, uh, when what, I was I'm sorry, camp. we were running out of time, so I just want to know what your the question pain, is. The pain came from having <laughs> a woman seduced away from me by, an, by another right. woman. This is a case hey. of a male dominating a lesbian evening. <laughs> is that the man applauding? Bye-bye. <laughs> I can't imagine why. <laughs> I feel terrible that's the last comment. Let's have one last one from someone we want to hear from. Can I change the focus a little bit? Um, I'm, I'm very excited by a lot of the lesbian and gay history that's being published, but some of the critical theory 
completely confounds me. And since this is a meeting sponsored by Plags, I want to ask if any of the panelists feel that quote-unquote queer theory has any relevance to their creative work or their political work. Absolutely. You think so? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely yeah, of course. Anyway. <laughs> well, I don't like this stuff. It does, it's not relevant to me, you know, because I can't understand it, you know. It's not, it's not written, you know, uh, elegantly to oh. me. Is there a specific theory you're talking to? Well, no, about? they're talking about, I think that, when I, I think, well, maybe she should say what she means by queer oh. theory, but I think... Well, I don't understand mm -hmm. it either, Barbara, mm -hmm. but it's, oh. it's the stuff I'm talking about is deconstructionist. Yeah, it's really tied to like theory with the capital T literary theory. We only like it if we can understand so. it. <laughs> but I think queer theory, I think the use of the term queer theory is directly tied to that, you know, movement trend and the academy and literature to have, you know, this you know, obscurity, you know, beyond anyone's imagining, imagining about what should be about beauty. You know, in other words, literary criticism that doesn't have anything, that, that doesn't really touch upon the beauty of, or even the content of the work itself, deconstruction, all that stuff. I don't read it, you know. I mean, I read about it. I don't read it myself. Um, even the use of the term queer bothers me because I see something disappearing out of that, namely lesbian, you know, and perhaps gay as well. Um, but the thing, I think we're getting generational here. Um, I mean, a lot of the questions that have come up really are generational questions, you know. Um, the ways that I think uh, women uh, define their identity who be came out post-Stonewall, and that is like significantly post-Stonewall, like in the 80s, the 90s, um, they see their identities differently than those of us who knew we were lesbians pre-Stonewall. How, how is that? How do they see it differently? Well, I think they take, um, I think that they, they take some, um, what, freedoms more for granted. I mean, we, we were like, uh, you know, warriors slash uh, fighters because there was so, there was nothing for us, so little for us. And the thing is, we're still in that mentality, that headset, you know. I mean, I, I, mean, I truly identify with some of the things that, that the two of you have said because we're, we have a generational thing going, you know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah. Well, so the thing is that I feel that for people of different generations, people see things differently. And for people who are like 20 years or 30 years younger than everyone on the panel, this queer theory may mean something to them that it doesn't mean to us, you know? And with that, this panel throws the gauntlet down to the second panel, and thank you very much. start sharply at 8 to give the second panel the kind of time that...